Hello and welcome to Mr. President from otrgold.com. This episode will begin after a brief message from our sponsors. Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer's Edward Arnold. <laughs> Mr. President, at home in the White House, the elected leader of our people, our fellow citizen and neighbor. These are little-known stories of the men who've lived in the White House. Dramatic, exciting events in their lives that you and I rarely hear. True human stories of Mr. President. In just a moment, you will hear Edward Arnold as Mr. President. But first, may we point out the truth of the saying, history repeats itself. For instance, did you know that there has been a president of the United States who was a general in our army and who was drafted for the presidency? Did you know that there was a president who broke with both regular parties and formed a third party of his own? Did you know that there was a president who promoted a general over the heads of a dozen other officers because the president believed that general was a better commander than his superiors? Yes, these incidents sound familiar to you in the light of your own times, and yet they all happened many years ago. They all have been told in warm human details by Mr. President. Here on this weekly radio program, you listen to those stories and learn of the great men who have made history. Listen now to the story and see if you can name the president whose career this story is about. Now, in just a moment, Edward Arnold. Edward Arnold as Mr. President. Let's visit him in the White House. It is Sunday, and the old mansion is resting quietly after a busy week. We walk through the great doors under the presidential seal, across the foyer, and down the long hall to the president's study. Oh, hello. Come in and sit down, won't you? You know, there were times while I was in the White House when I was convinced that a president needed three essentials to survive his job. A sense of humor, a strong belief in the power of prayer, and a refuge away from the executive mansion. Frankly, I had the first, I developed the second, and I discovered the third. Later on, of course, I'll tell you which president this really happened to, but meanwhile, you may be able to guess. It was my third year in the White House, and I had become a wartime president a little more than a month after my inauguration. The troubles of a war president were complicated for me by personal clashes among my commanders in the field, Add to this a constant stream of people who felt that only the president could solve their problems, and you will understand why I soon discovered one of the most closely guarded places in Washington as my refuge and hideaway. The room was over at the War Department and was the communication center of our army. Good morning, Mr. President. How is, Major? What's the news? Good news, sir. There isn't any. I see. No news is good news? Yes, sir. Uh, my young friend, that rule always doesn't hold good. 
A fisherman doesn't consider it good news when he can't get a bite. (laughs) You're very right about that, Mr. President. If you'll excuse me, sir. Of course, I'll just find my corner as usual. Well, now, Tinker, what is this process you're doing? Checking the batteries, Mr. President. I see, mixing the juices, Anne. Oh, it's good to sit down in peace and... Come Mr. President. Yes, I did major. The chatter of your, your instruments isn't half as wearying as the chatter of certain tons of... <laughs> What's on the spike this morning? Here's a message. Just came in, sir. Mm-hmm. Mr. President, have under my command one gun of Battery C, 5th New York. I have the whole enemy army in my front. Send me another gun and they will not come over. Sergeant Major Timothy Riley. <laughs> well, it would take an Irish artilleryman to find himself in such a spot. Yes, sir, or to believe himself in such a position. <laughs> well, I think we'd better answer the young man, Major. Something to this effect, your courage undoubted and your skill with artillery well known. Suggest you contact your battery headquarters at once and demand the second gun. <laughs> Thank you for your offer and sign my name to him. Yes, sir, at once. Message here, Major. Urgent. Thank you, Tinker. Decode it already? Yes, sir. May I, Major? Of course, sir. It's from General Hooker, Mr. President. Uh Uh-huh. I have information at hand. Enemy about to move in strength against our lines. Expect to drive homeward. Northward. We'll keep you advised, Hooker. Well, at last we're getting down to cases, Major. Uh, Don't quote me on this, but I sincerely hope that our General Hooker has one-fifth the courage of our Irish Sergeant of Artillery... There's a chatterbox for you. What is it saying, Tinker? A message for you, sir. Withdrawal threatens center of industry and communications. Have reports that General Ewell has been ordered to capture Harrisburg. We, the Committee of Safety, urgently pray you remove present commanding general and give us... A man. Yes, sir. Oh, I... I didn't know you knew Morse code, Mr. President. I don't, but we've had so many messages like that, I know them almost by heart. Is there anything from General Meade today? Nothing from the Fifth Army, sir. Merely routine. Hmm. No contact with the enemy there as yet. And the latest on you? He's crossed the river, sir, and is moving rapidly northward. Mm-hmm. Then Harrisburg has reason to worry. If the enemy's progress continues at the most rapid pace possible and unopposed, hmm. they cannot reach the vicinity of Harrisburg for at least ten days. And unopposed. Yes, sir. Major Eckert, you are presuming to comment on the conduct of the campaign as it is being conducted by our superior officers? Yes, sir. Uh-huh. <laughs> Major, I agree with you. <laughs> In fact, there are times when I can dream of only one thing, how to find a commanding officer who would take orders instead of giving them somebody who wouldn't be quarreling with everybody all the time. Frankly, if General Hooker would make a move in any direction except backward, I would be a most happy man. Yes, sir. Major, you and I, we we wait and watch together, don't we? We do receive the news before anyone else, sir. Although I do wonder sometimes how you find the patience to read through all the messages we handle here. Well, if I didn't come in here, I'd be receiving only the information Stanton and his war department wanted me to know. And that's no way for the commander-in-chief to try to help run a war, is it? No, sir. Still, if you would permit yourself a little more rest. Rest? Rest? Yes, of course. <laughs> Watch this, what's this couch here for, huh? Well, it's not the newest article of furniture in Washington, but it's sag does fit a man's body. <clears throat> in fact, if you'll pardon me, I think I'll catch 40 winks. 
But call me at once, Major, if there's any word, especially if the wire to Fifth Army begins to bring in news, huh? He's asleep already. Tinker, you're looking at a weary man. You'd think living in the White House and all, he'd have more comfort in his bed up there. Maybe, in the physical sense. But his heart is out in the field, and this is the closest he can come. <laughs> Tinker, that's the president and the commander-in-chief sleeping there on that old couch. You want to tell your grandchildren about this? You and I, we're working with a very, very great man. Well, let's get back to work. I'd like to get these reports out as soon as possible. Mr. President, this is where I find you. Take it easy, Ed. What's the trouble? Well, don't you realize, Mr. President, that our army is in real difficulty? Well, now, suppose you explain it to me. After all, the Secretary of War is supposed to be able to take care of details for the President. Now, really, sir, this is no time for small talk. The enemy is across the Potomac. He's advancing on the Susquehanna and down the Shenandoah Valley. Hey, Jacket. Yes, sir? How long ago did dispatches uh, to this effect come through this office? Early this morning, sir. There you are, Ed. I've known all this for hours. Uh, and do you know that there's almost panic in Philadelphia, that the citizens of Baltimore are preparing to flee, and that Washington itself is in danger? Well, I understand that General Hooker has planned his retreat to cover Washington and Baltimore. And if I read his intentions rightly, he will draw out enemy communications to the breaking point, and that will save Philadelphia. Hmm. And in the meantime? In the meantime, the center of our position appears to be in the capable hands of the Fifth Corps. Meade's army? Yes, seem very confident, sir. I'm anything but confident, Ed. I'm just praying. And staying right here in this telegraph room as close to the line as I can. Maybe I can help. Mr. President, the lobby of the White House is teeming with men who demand... Demand, demand. I know about that, too. Major, give me the demand file. Yes, sir. We've been stacking up the messages on that subject, then. See for yourself. More than a hundred. <laughs> Hello. When did this one come in? Tinker, did you file this? Uh, yes, sir. It seemed to belong to the rest. Well, that's all right. That's all right. You couldn't be expected to know that a message from Colonel McClure of Philadelphia requires immediate answer. Oh, I'm sorry, sir. No matter. Get back to your key. Uh, yes, sir. What does he want? The colonel? Well, merely the recall of McClellan. Great heaven. Oh, he's not the only one. At least half of these messages ask that simple solution. Perhaps it might be wise to consider... Major the... Eckert. Yes, sir. Dispatch the following at once. Colonel A.K. McClure, Philadelphia. Do we gain anything by opening one leak to stop another? Do we gain anything by quieting one clamor merely to open a larger one? Send my name to him. Yes, sir. I'm answered, sir. You are that, Ed. Now, is there anything else? Uh, sir, if you'll pardon me. Message through here from General Hooker to General Halleck at Harper's Ferry. Action at last. Let me see that. Oh, Ed, Listen. Request you send garrison at Harper's Ferry to raid enemy communications. Develop raid into full attack if possible. Hooker. Mr. President Halleck reports only to you. You won't take orders from Hooker. It's not an order. It's a request. Look here. Look at the map. Why, certainly, it stands out like a sore thumb. Cutting the enemy's line off uh, of supply by, by a raid from Harper's will stop his advance in its tracks. Yeah, you may be right. But I still say that Halleck will refuse to accept an order or suggestion from the man you yourself appointed as Halleck's commander-in-chief. So what can we expect but failure? Well, Ed, you're almost a regular here these days. Uh, your example, Mr. President. Well, it's good to know someone follows the President's example. Uh, your pardon, Mr. President. Yes, Tinker. Uh, this just came from Harper's Ferry, en route to General Hooker's headquarters. Mm-hmm. 
Cannot release garrison for stupid chase. Suggest you detach cavalry units from your present command. Halleck, you call the turn, Ed. So it seems. Has this one gone through, Tinker? Yes, sir. General Hooker has it by now. What now? Oh, unless I miss my guess, Hooker will have something to say immediately. Your own calm must be having its effect on me. Ordinarily, I'd have exploded. There's not much use in exploding, Ed. There'll be a time to act. Meanwhile, we watch and we wait. That's it from General Hooker, sir. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Major. Well, this does it, Ed. So? Hooker resigns his command. And a lot of people will be relieved, including the enemy, I'm sure. You assume that I'm accepting his resignation? Well, aren't you? Of course I am. This man knows our desperate position, but can't rise above a personal squabble. McClellan again? No, no. I'll not replace one second raider by calling another. Well, who then? Major, a message to Fifth Army uh, Corps headquarters. Tell General Meade that he is to assume full command of the United States Army upon receipt of this message. Give him one order. Advance against the enemy as soon as possible. <laughs> In just a moment, we'll come back to Edward Arnold and Mr. President. Today, America is building the largest, best-trained, technically-educated peacetime army and air force in its history. And although selective service is now law, the volunteer enlistment program is still being continued. The volunteers mean high morale and efficiency for our armed forces. At the moment, selective service is being used to supply the difference between the number of volunteers and the total authorized strength of the services. That's why many volunteers are needed. Today's Army and Air Force are charged with the essential tasks of carrying out occupation duties in Europe and the Far East, garrisoning our, our outlying bases, manning the military establishments at home, conducting research developments and experimentation, carrying on the training of new men and replacements. And you can help the volunteer recruiting program by always showing your respect for the man in uniform. As a good citizen, look to the Army or Air Force man with pride. Now, back to Edward Arnold and Mr. President. You've probably guessed by now who the president is in this story. Of course, later on, I'll tell you which one it was. It was the 28th of June when General Hooker resigned his command. I appointed General Meade in his place and went home to the White House to pray. I prayed that night, and the night following, and the one following that. During the day, Ed Stanton and I lived in the telegraph room at the War Department. We waited for the two opposing armies to join battle. And each morning, I asked Major Eckert to give us a picture of what was happening. Our forces under Hancock, Sickles, and Reynolds are moving in the direction of Gettysburg, gentlemen, while General Meade himself appears to be in the vicinity of Taneytown. The rest of our forces are as far away as Westminster. Too scattered, much too scattered. And the enemy? General Early's divisions are moving down from York, and the enemy under General Hill advancing along the Chambersburg Road. That's our information to date. Look, look at the map, Mr. President. Our right flank can only curve back on itself in a fishhook. Our position is almost untenable already. Mm, it's not too bad, Ed. If we move fast enough to hold the town, or even turn our line here on Culp's Hill and run it along the ridge here... Cemetery Ridge, sir. Oh, is that what they call it? Yes, sir. Rather too appropriate from what seems to be shaping up in that vicinity. Defeat seems to be shaping up. Oh, give me the chance, Ed. Nothing's lost as yet. Except position, sir. Except position. Any word from General Meade, Major? Not as yet, sir. 
His regular morning communique should be off the wire shortly, however. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mr. President. Yes, Dinker. Uh, this came in just now, sir. Addressed to you from General Meade. Mm, thank you. Great Caesar's ghost. Have we made contact with them, sir? Made contact? General Meade wires that he will engage the enemy within a reasonable time. A reasonable time? In two weeks, Stuart's cavalry will have reached the outskirts of New York and Lee will be in Philadelphia. They're forcing the fight, not us. Yes, General. Yes, sir. Our General Meade will be ready to fight a magnificent battle when there is no enemy to fight. Confusion. Utter and absolute confusion inside Gettysburg and out. The fog of war, Ed, it will clear up. Will it, sir? Buford takes his cavalry into the town. Then word comes that the First Corps has fled before Hill's men on the Chambersburg Road. Now we find out they didn't flee, but only retreated strategically. Meanwhile, the enemies in Gettysburg, Buford's division has disappeared and Meade's is 15 miles away. Ah, you forget Howard up on Cemetery Hill. Forget. You knew he was there. What kind of fighting is this? Desperate and bloody fighting him. I know that. But once war was fought in an orderly manner, armies moved into position and then attacked. But this, divisions moving up, divisions moving out, artillery on ridges, cavalry coming out of nowhere, a line shaped like a fish hook. Certainly not according to any rules I've ever read. I think, Ed, that this is the first battle in a new kind of warfare. And I can't help wishing... Can't help wishing just a little that the men who invented it, Generals Lee, Johnson, Longstreet, not to mention Jeb Stewart, well, I can't help but wish they were on our side for a little while. Is it clear now, Mr. President, what happened up there yesterday? Well, if you mean, do I understand that we took a fearful uh, rapping? Uh, it's very clear, Major. I'm afraid you're right, sir. Uh, let me see if I have our position correct as of this moment. Yes, sir. Let me see. Our line swings around Culp's Hill to the north and runs rough, roughly north and south along Cemetery Hill across the little round top and onto the round top itself. Before us are a peach orchard, a wheat field, two streams, Willoughby's Run and Devil's Run. Well named, that one. And a stone wall with a sharp right angle that projects well out in front of our line. Roughly, that's it, Mr. President. Now, the enemy is facing us on Seminary Ridge. His artillery appears to command the valley between, as well as the Emmitsburg Road that runs into that valley. Parallel between the two armies. Very correct, sir. Now, it looks to my civilian eye, Major, as if the positions we have assumed are fairly good, defensively speaking. It seems so, sir. It's always harder to attack uphill. Uh, let me see now. If I were Lee, what would I do? I might move southward and force us to pull off the off of Culp's Hill and Cemetery Hill 
This flat country to the south. Well, if his army is demanding an attack, he might force battle at Culp's Hill. Pour all his power in there. Or equally, at the little round top down here at the southern end. That's difficult, but not impossible, sir. Well, the only impossible move seems to be a simultaneous attack at both ends of the line. We could defend ourselves much better in that case, sir. Our line being shorter than theirs. Even my amateur's eye sees that, Major. Sorry. Major, I'm seeing something else as well. Yes, sir. You're a military man. You hear these telegraph instruments and see the map and the various units marked on it. I'm afraid, Major, that what I see is not the chessboard, but men. And what I'm hearing are the guns and the wounded. Special message, Mr. President, from General Meade's headquarters. Let me have it, please. I see. Wright's brigade was through our lines for a while, but we forced him back. Devil's Run is red with blood... And General Sickles is among the wounded. Lost a leg. Estimated casualties just on our side for this day's fighting. Twelve thousand. May I have my hat, Tinker? Uh, yes, sir. If anything develops before dawn, where shall I reach you, Mr. President? Or at the White House, Major, in my room. I think I know my place tonight. On my knees, asking the Almighty God to give us victory. The third day, Mr. President, of nothing, absolutely nothing. Both sides exhausted, then? I don't know. That's it. Nobody knows. I doubt if the men commanding up there know themselves. May I see the latest messages, Major? Yes, sir, right here. Hmm, thank you. Johnson's Confederates driven out of positions captured yesterday. Time received, 12.30 a.m., Lulland Battle, both armies bivouac. Time received, 12 noon, enemy artillery preparing bombardment, estimate 120 guns. Unable to bring more than 80 artillery pieces to action against enemy positions due to difficult terrain, top of Cemetery Ridge. Oh, that's not good, Ed, not good at all. Lee has something special up his sleeve. 120 guns. Just in, Mr. President. Battle has started again. Let me see. Yes, sir. Excuse me, sir. My key again. Enemy bombardment opened on signal 1 p.m. Casualties high. General Meade retired from headquarters to Powers Hill. It begins again. But why? Why all that waste of ammunition? Oh, think a minute, Ed. Think what he said, what we said yesterday. Well, the fog of war? That, yes, but something about a new kind of war. Yes, yes, so? The enemy, Ed, is now suffering our lines. In other words, he's preparing the way for a final effort by sending shellfire ahead of his men. If we could only match him gun for gun. We might have, Ed, if our generals had chosen the battleground and not the enemy. Message, Mr. President. Yes, Oh, thank you, Tinker. Hmm. Well, read it yourself, Ed. There may have been the enemy, but such heroism is rare. Rare indeed. Hmm. Incredible. Utterly incredible. But they've been driven back, Mr. President. They'll never recover from this. Never. I know, Ed. I know. Well, let me tell you here now, when the history of our time is written, the place at Gettysburg that will be remembered will be the bloody angle in the old stone wall. The name that will be remembered will be a Virginia name. Pickett. 
and the gallant, tragic courage of his fighting men. I am honored to have so distinguished a visitor as the President of the United States. Not at all, General Sickles. As a matter of fact, I, I have a very personal motive in calling on you now that they have brought you here to the hospital in Washington. General, can we expect further results from Gettysburg? We have won a victory, sir. At considerable cost to you personally, too, and to many thousands of families on both sides. But I'm thinking of the fruits of this victory, sir. I don't quite follow you. Well, I'm merely a civilian general, but it seems to me that if General Meade pressed after the enemy, we might succeed in shortening the war by many, many months. I understand, Mr. President. Still, I'm afraid I cannot answer your question. Well, you were there, General. Unfortunately, only until I was wounded on the second day. I'm in no position to give an opinion. I understand. Completely, General. May I ask a question in my turn? Of course. While you followed the campaign, sir, in the telegraph room, as Mr. Stanton has told me, were you never anxious about it? No, I was never anxious. Things looked rather bad for us for a while. Very bad, General, but, well, I'll tell you how it was. In the pinch of your campaign up there, when everybody seemed panic-stricken and nobody could tell what was going to happen... I went to my room one day and locked the door. Got down on my knees and prayed for victory at Gettysburg. I told the Almighty God this was His war and our cause was His cause, but that we couldn't stand another Fredericksburg or Chancellorville. And then and there I made a solemn vow to Almighty God that if He would stand by our boys at Gettysburg, I, I would stand by Him. And he did. And I will. Well, you've probably figured out by now who I was when all that happened. It really did happen, you know, and I'll tell you the answer in just a moment. Nothing reflects the spirit of America and the American people better than our music. Music that started when the country started and grew with it. Some of it is grand and courageous, the pioneer theme. Some of it is dreamy and lovely, reminiscent of the South. These are the types of music you hear every Sunday night on Carnegie Hall. Every Sunday evening, Carnegie Hall salutes a different event in American history and plays music that is reminiscent of that period. The well-known conductor, Dr. Frank Black, leads the concert orchestra on the Carnegie Hall broadcast. This is a truly thrilling musical event, Carnegie Hall, featuring the music every American loves when it's heard Sunday evenings over most of these same ABC stations. Now, here again is Edward Arnold. Of course, you know by now that the president of today's story was Abraham Lincoln. It's interesting to note that Lincoln did spend days and nights in the telegraph room at the War Department during the battles, both in refuge from constant callers and to be as close as he could to the battlefields. And frankly, this great human being had the two real essentials that carried him through our country's greatest crises, a wonderful, deep, heartfelt sense of humor and an unshakable belief and the power of prayer. Come and see me again next week, won't you? I'll have another story for you then that I'm sure you'll enjoy. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>
Edward Arnold appeared by arrangement with Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, producers of the Technicolor picture The Three Musketeers, starring Lana Turner, Gene Kelly, and June Allison. Mr. President was created by Robert G. Jennings. It was produced and directed by Leonard Reed. This story by Ira Marion was suggested by incidents in the life of President Abraham Lincoln. Music was composed by Basil Adlam. Be sure to listen again next week when the American Broadcasting Company and its affiliated stations bring you Edward Arnold with another interesting and factual story of Mr. President. This is ABC, the American Broadcasting Company.